The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, by our baptism into the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, you turn us from the old life of sin. Grant that we, being reborn to new life in him, may live in righteousness and holiness all our days. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. All right. We're continuing our conversation of prayer, about prayer. And um, last time we we said a bit about uh, the kingdom, um, what it means for the kingdom uh, to come. So let's turn to page 84, and we'll keep going with a little bit about God's will. And I'm just doing a little bit of review for the first few minutes. Question 178. When you pray for God's kingdom to come, what do you desire? I pray that the whole creation may enjoy full restoration to its rightful Lord. Um, In scripture, you get the sense, and it's the right sense to get, that all of creation is under new management, uh, not necessarily the rightful management. Um, And and what has happened in Christ is that uh, the retaking of the kingdom has begun. Um, I always love to think about, you know, C.S. Lewis in Beer Christianity uh, talks about the incarnation as um, God being inserted behind enemy lines. Um, and it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful image uh, of what takes place in Christ. Um, so when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're not praying for it to, to commence. We're praying for it to come uh, and, and continue to come. Um, in God's kingdom comes, we read in 179, um, it is, established, it is founded in Christ's incarnation. So listen to this language. It's foreshadowed in the Old Testament, founded in Christ's incarnation, established with his ascension, advances with the fulfilling of the Great Commission, and will be completed when Christ delivers it to God the Father at the end of time. Um, and we live in this kingdom in 180. We live in this kingdom with joy, hope, and peace as a child of God, a citizen of heaven, and a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Um, it's important to note that, um, you know, it, it, it can be very difficult for us as modern people who tend to be very, you know, uh, militantly democratic in certain ways to, uh, to, to think about ourselves as living in a monarchy, can it not? Um, and now that we have constitutional monarchies dotting the, the globe, it's even harder to think about a monarchy uh, because we think of them as just sort of these old people that just sort of hold court occasionally. Um, the kingship which scripture envisions and which scripture sees in Christ um, is a total kingship, um, total power, uh, total reign. And that's important to say. Um, and so I think it's important that we note as well that um, this, this should speak to us primarily, I think is really, especially as we, we see things now, um, primarily of uh, the, the kingdom not merely being a spiritual kingdom. Does that make sense? Like, you know, Jesus just doesn't come just to kind of reign in our hearts, right? In the sort of non-practical, uh, you know, way. But to reign over all, uh, to restore everything uh, to its rightful Lord. All right. Then we speak about, um, in, the, in, the, in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And part of, the, part, of the, um, part of the prayer here is asking God's will uh, to be perfectly done. Um, we understand, and we should understand, that in heaven the will of God is perfectly done. Um, but we certainly know, as Christians, right, that the will of God is not perfectly done here, is it? Don't you see that? Okay, do you flip on the news more regularly and you'll start to see that, uh, that, that God's will is not perfectly done here. And so the prayer of the Christian is that God's will would be done perfectly here as well, um, as, as just as it is in heaven. Um, and I think that, well, let's, let's go through this quickly. I think we did it last week, but it bears repeating. What is the third petition? The third petition is, this is question 181, I'm sorry. <laughs> what is the third petition? The third petition is, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will accomplished in heaven? The heavenly company of angels and perfected believers responds to God in perfect, willing obedience and perfect worship. Um, As you well know, there's a difference between obedience and willing obedience, yes? Right? Right, there's kind of like 
Mm, crumble, 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 I'll do it. Okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> but then there's also this like, yes, I'd love to do that. The kind of obedience and the kind of uh, will of God being done in heaven is a willing obedience. It's a perfect obedience. Um, another way to put it is it's a grown-up kind of obedience. Um, and, and parents know this. I mean, you, you tell your kid to go do something and they, they don't want to do and they go, ah, fine, I'll go do it. <laughs> and they're not happy about it. Um, but what you want is, as they grow up, for them to be more and more um, uh, mature in their wills. Where can you find God's will? I find the will of God outlined in the Ten Commandments, learn its fullness from the whole of Scripture, and see it culminate in the law of Christ, which calls for my complete love of God and my neighbor. Um, very often, God's will is spoken of as some sort of mysterious thing. Oh, we can't know God's will, and we can't know this, we can't know that. Well, in a certain sense, that's absolutely true, right? Um, but we can know certain things, can we not, about his will? Um, it's revealed in Scripture. Okay. Um, part of this is described in a way that um, we get to know each other, right? I mean, there was a time when uh, you, Jordan, were a name on a sheet of paper to me. Okay. And that's changed over time. Now, do I know everything about you? No, right? I don't know everything about you. I know certain things about you, um, but I don't know everything. Um, over time, it's revealed. Um, and so in Scripture, we make this clear. We do know God through Scripture. Do we know everything about God through Scripture? No. Um, can, we, can we know God fully through Scripture? No. Um, but we can know his will um, at least, at least in, in such wise as, as we most of the time need, right? Um, because here's part of the problem. Part of the problem is, the question is, well, you know, um, and I've seen this happen on numerous occasions. Um, it's, well, you know, maybe it's God's will that I lie just this one time, right? Well, is it? No. Um, maybe, it, maybe it's God's will that I sleep in this Sunday. It'll be, it'll be okay, you know? Uh, well, no, we know God's will through Scripture. We understand it. Um, and keep in mind that the law of Christ doesn't just call for the kind of obedience which we see under the law. The law of Christ calls for my complete love of God and my neighbor. Now, how often do you fall short of that? Like all the time, right? Should we lower the standard just because? Should we sort of make it more accessible for more people? No, because then it wouldn't be the perfect law of love, right? Um, I think this is part of the other issue that happens. Um, people will occasionally say, you know, if only the church would just lower the standard a bit, uh, more and more people would come. More and more people would join up. Um, and, you know, I found through, through the years the exact opposite is true. The exact opposite is true. The more we speak about the perfect will of Christ and his perfect love, and we speak about it in these rigorous terms, uh, the more people hunger. Because they're not just sort of hungering for a better life, are they? They're hungering for a perfect life, um, such as we can't even get ourselves. Uh, so this is a very important um, thing. I remember um, several years ago uh, hearing, and this, this is kind of a common trope, but um, you know, a bishop saying, you know, if, if only we could open up, the, open up the, the grounds a little bit on marriage, you know, people would just flood into the church. And I think the last, well, it's been, it's been 15 years since he said that, and I think it hasn't worked out terribly well, right? It just hasn't worked. Um, and I think, you know, and that's not to say, oh, let's all be prudes about sex, right? Is it? Not at all. Not at all. Um, it's to say that, um, that uh, well, in today's gospel reading, it's made immensely clear. Jesus says, you know, whoever lessens one of these commandments of mine uh, will be least in the kingdom, relaxes the commandments. Um, so so the, the, the will is quite high, um, and we need to say this more regularly. Well, let's ask 184, how is God's will accomplished on earth? God's kingdom comes whenever and wherever God's will is done. As the church aims to hallow God's name and seek first his kingdom, it should lead the way in wholehearted obedience to God in Christ. And I should join and support the church in this. Um, you know, I'm convinced, uh, and, and I, 
a certain writer by the name of Leslie Newbigin, uh, who is a, a bishop and an Anglican bishop, um, said quite clearly that you know what 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 really take what 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 this whole evangelistic task really takes is not better materials or better programs or more effective communication. What it takes is a a, a body, a local bodies of people who actually live by the power of the cross. Right. Isn't that the most compelling hermeneutic of the gospel? I mean, I think it is. Um, listen, when, when, you, when you came into a church um, and you saw that people's lives were being altered by Christ through the gospel, it's powerful, is it not? Um, it's central even. Um, and, and here is this, this truth, that God's will is accomplished on earth whenever and wherever God's will is done. So I have to say, I think this is really key. If we want uh, to be, um, to be, and I'm probably going to steal Nicholas's thunder for the sermon today, but you know, if we really want to be salt and light and a city on the hill, we've got to be those things. And that, that explicitly means seeking out God's will, um, his perfect will. Um, because really, this, this, this is very winsome when that happens, is it not? I mean, that's, that's one of the the main things in my the main thing in my life that I'd say probably the reason that I'm a Christian today is that time and time again I have people I've seen people's lives completely um, undone and put together in a miraculous way uh, by the gospel, um, and so that's uh, that's something that I think you know, it's just it's just really hard to deny, isn't it? Because like here's the thing you can have this sort of like apologetic argument with somebody. And you'll probably go. You'll probably go nowhere. But when somebody says, "You know, um, I used to love really basically nobody but myself," if I'm really honest, and when God came into my life um, through Jesus Christ, um, and when I really learned and really was drawn to deep obedience to Christ, my whole life changed. That's a really powerful statement, is it not? Because who's going to say, "Ah, you're full of you're you're full of it." You can't, can you? Because have you ever heard of anything else like that? I mean, nobody says that. Now, they might be saying something because they're in a multi-level marketing thing and they're trying to get you to buy a product, but this product changed my life, but that's about it, right? And you know they're trying to get you to buy something, but, but that's it. Um, it's, it's an amazing, amazing thing. What more do you seek in the third petition? In the third petition, I also pray for God to counter the dominion of the world, the flesh, and the devil in my own soul, to thwart the plans of wicked people, and to extend the kingdom of his grace to others through me. One of the almost universal things which um, ancient people did before they were baptized was they renounced the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, It's almost a, a... in the ancient church, a universal thing that people did. Um, and, and you would do this standing um, in the waters of baptism before you would be baptized. And you would be, um, in many cases, uh, like for instance in um, certain places in Europe, you didn't look towards the setting sun as, they, as happened in many places. You looked north to the barbarian hordes. Okay, Why? Because the thing you feared the most in, real, in reality was barbarians. So you look north and you say, I renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay? And, and, and then you're baptized. Okay? Um, which is to say that for, for many, many, many centuries, and it even is today, I mean, if you come to a baptism here, you'll see that these renunciations take place. Um, they're very firmly uh, made. Um, but that is to say that um, having renounced all of that, you receive new life in Christ. Now, let me ask this. Does that mean that those things are forever gone and banished? Hardly, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil continue to plague us. Um, but it is to say that we ask for God to do the work of countering those things in our lives. Um, so when you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, you're not simply praying in general terms for the whole of creation. You're praying for, for, that, um, for what often is a microcosm of all the conflict in the universe, right? Me. Would you agree with that? I mean, this is part of the problem. Um, it's very easy to flip on the news, flip on CNN, flip on whatever channel you like to watch, and say, what is wrong with the world, man? 
It's a disaster. And the reality of it is we need to be like G.K. Chesterton who once uh, responded to a, uh, uh, a statement in the newspaper, what is wrong with the world? And he responded in the letter to the editor, dear sir, I am, <laughs> signed affectionately, G.K. <laughs> Chesterton. Um, you know, and, and this was to say that uh, we, we must see that conflict in ourselves first. And I would say there's been, a, there's been a, a failure to be introspective about the conflicts which we see on TV within our very lives. Um, we think all that stuff is happening without, outside of us. And in truth, it's actually happening within us, right? Do we not struggle to love our neighbor on a daily basis? Absolutely. Um, do we not struggle with murderous thoughts even as we're watching the news? Right? I mean... Listen, watch, and I try not to watch the news, but when I flip it on and I see that some child was killed, my first thought is, I wish I was there to shoot him. Take revenge. Right? Now, is, is it just? I'm not going to answer that. But it's just to say, what's welling up in my soul is hatred. Um, we have to see that. Um, and, and I think part of the issue today is that many people are very prone to this very basic and very, I'm ranting now, but <laughs> to this very basic and very facile understanding of the universe in which I'm a good person and all the other people are bad. Right? So don't hassle me. I'm on the good side. And what's the truth? The truth is that if I'm really honest about it, the world of the flesh and the devil plague me. And were it not for God's grace, I would continually be plagued. And would fall victim to it. Go ahead, Bert. Yes, yeah, so a couple things. One is that uh, what, one of the things that's been lost today is this sort of classical, classical conception of the informed conscience, right? Um, listen, consciences are not born, they're made, right? They're formed over time. Um, listen, if, if we left all moral decisions up to two-year-olds, we would have wars all the time. Right, because it would be like you know he drank my juice and now I'm going to hit him right, and, and it would be a disaster. Um, but over time, the conscience is formed. So I think that's really important: is that um, we we act out of a, a, a deeply formed conscience. And and by the way, in the Christian understanding, the conscience, and I think even in the classical understanding, the conscience is not this sort of like angel on one shoulder, demon on the other, kind of talking in your head and trying to get you to do something, uh, and each having their own conception of what good is. Um, but is instead, and it's not even your internal monologue, it is, it is um, how you are formed to respond to these moral questions, right? So that's the first thing. The other thing to say is that um, we, we don't, it's, it's, it's very provocative to be taken in by this idea that we sort of can reason through every moral decision that comes before us. I mean, listen. Let's just be honest. When you sin, is it because you made a moral, you made an informed, rational decision to sin? No, right? What did you do? I mean, most of the time it was you gave your will over to something that was that was alluring, right? Um, I remember uh, an old bishop that was a great, great man. He he told the story of standing outside this this little church in Virginia and at the at the end of a service and. This little old lady came up to him and said, Father, I want you to know that I know I'm a sinner. I'm just not a miserable one. <laughs> and that was relating to, the, in the prayer book, you know, we miserable sinners. You know, there's all this language of that. And she just said, I'm just not miserable, right? Well, nobody sins because it's miserable. You sin because it kind of fills this, uh, this need that you might have. And I think this is where I'll get to your answer. What's, what's really been most helpful is um, to have some real objectivity about, about that. Because here's the problem. As you sin, is your imagination not clouded? Well, it's absolutely clouded, right? Um, as you sin, is your will not clouded? Of course it's clouded. Um, the problem with committing the same sin over and over again is that you become enslaved to it. Um, and, and the reality of it is that sheer willpower enough is insufficient, is it not? 
right? I, I, I can't quit, right? Um, in fact, this is, this is what the 12-steppers really illuminate, isn't it? By the way, they started off as Christian organizations that said, by the way, you're, you're powerless to change your drinking habits, right? Um, you have to turn to God. So what's the first recognition? I'm powerless to do anything about it. Um, now, this is where the objectivity of, um, of, of, uh, of another, um, particularly one who has some, some training in moral theology, is really helpful, right? It's to say, and I've often had this happen in confession, it's, you know, I did this, and I'm not even quite sure what to think about it. I know that it weighs heavily on my conscience, but that's it. Um, and I'm trying to think through the, the difficulty of it. And sometimes my honest response in a confession situation is, I don't think you did anything wrong. Just speaking honestly. But sometimes it's, you don't even realize how wrong it was. <laughs> um, let, me, let me fill it in for you a little bit. Okay. Um, and that could be really helpful. Um, and, and, of course, in this vein, Scripture does seriously um, hold up the goodness of having people around us that, uh, that speak truth to us. Um, and, but also, I mean, I keep, need to keep this in, in sharp focus. Um, as Anglicans, we believe that the, the apostles, and this is right in Scripture, are given the authority to absolve sins, right? You know what happens when sin is absolved? Yeah, it's, it's put away, right? The debt is dropped. And what that, what that means is that um, where, where in your life Christ had not reigned as king, he now reigns as king. Okay? Um, and that's a really important thing. Because um, part of the problem, and I think this is maybe, maybe part of answering your question is, part of the problem is that as long as we try to deal with sin in our own conscience, it's, it's just really difficult, isn't it? Because we, we ask questions like, well, can I really be forgiven of that? Will God really forgive that? We also say, was it really that bad? Well, maybe it wasn't that bad. How culpable was I really, right? Do I really feel sorry for it? Am I really repentant? Do I really, you know, and, and really the reality of it is, um, you know, the, the simple answer is, well, just go confess it, Right? That, that's the miraculous thing about it. And, and again, we, we, we make a general, confession, a general confession on Sunday mornings, and the same thing happens. It's what's required in the face of sin is not to rationalize it, and certainly not to dismiss it, but just to say, yeah, I did it. That was me. It wasn't somebody else. It wasn't my dog. It wasn't my wife. It, wasn't, it was me. I did it. Okay. Dana. <laughs> Yeah, remorseful might be a little bit generous. I'd say he was probably more distressed than anything else, right? So the question is, was Judas Iscariot remorseful more than repentant? Well, he obviously wasn't repentant, right? Because here's what, here's what the Gospel of John shows us when we speak about Judas Iscariot. We, we see two men, right? We see Judas and we see Peter. And Judas is so, is so grieved by his own fault that he finds no other possible avenue than to kill himself. Right? He takes this like, God can't do anything about sin. Jesus can't do anything about my sin. The only one who can do anything about it is me. And the most extreme form of doing something about my own sin is killing myself. And it's sad that that's the case, but that's the truth. Right? What does Peter do? Is Peter really sorry that he sold Jesus out? Well, yeah. He, he, we read this. That he just, he, his face fell. His face falls. Um, does, he, does he go to the cross? Later on that day? No. I mean, he, he actually decides, I'm going to go fishing <laughs> later on. Um, but, but again, he doesn't run from Jesus, right? Um, and that's a really important thing for us to hear, too, which is that, um, listen, the, the devil's greatest achievement is getting you to quit, <laughs> When you just hang it up and say, well, nothing can be done about it, I'm done, I'm cooked, it's over, um, well, then, then you're done, right? He wins, it's over, right? But when you say, no, no one is beyond God's repair, no one is beyond God's kingdom, and, and, 
and indeed praying this, right? Listen to the prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You should hear on earth as it is in heaven means in my soul, in my life as it is in heaven. And then we pray for the forgiveness of sins, right? I mean, the Lord's prayer, hear this, the Lord's prayer is the, is the, is the song of redeemed people. Um, and, and it's, it's virtually unintelligible to modern ears, is it not? That's what's so fun about it, is that, is that everything in me and the way that I was formed in school and even by my own parents if, screams out against this sort of thing. Like, you know, who's responsible for the state of the world? Well, Donald Trump, obviously, right? I mean, we're told this over and over and over and over again. Um, can you really be forgiven for these horrific things that people do? No, they're unforgivable. I mean, just again, the, the Lord's Prayer is, is indeed an, uh, an undermining of that world and of that thought. Um, okay, should we continue on? Okay. Um, but let's, let's make one more point. We we're praying for God to extend the kingdom of his grace to others through me as well. Um, and this is the power of, um, of um, the kingdom being made manifest in our lives, right? It's one of the great things about it. Is that, again, we find that there's no better preaching of the gospel than when someone is truly living by the power of the cross. Right? Um let me just ask, have you met somebody whose life had been completely radicalized by the cross? I mean, these people are, they're kind of nuts, actually, in a good way. Um, but, but you can't argue with them. Because, you know, listen to the blind man in John chapter 9. It's like, who, who, who healed you? Who healed you? We want to know. Who, who sinned this man or his parents? He's like, I don't know. All I know is I was blind and I see now. And, and they're like, who healed you? Well, tell me so that I can worship him. This is, this is what it looks like. Okay, the fourth petition. For what personal blessings does the second half of the Lord's Prayer teach you to ask? As a loyal child of God, I pray first for God's honor, kingdom, and will. And then I pray for my own needs of daily bread pardon for sins, and protection from evil. Okay. This, is, this is a really important format that the Lord's Prayer is teaching us, which is first to pray for God's honor, kingdom, and will. Now, how many of you struggle with praying first for God's kingdom, honor, and will? <laughs> yeah, it's usually like, uh, Lord, my car's broken down, and it's really hard for me to pray that you would be honored, and it's really hard for me to pray that your kingdom would come. Would you please fix my car? <laughs> okay. Um, and quickly, um, would you please send me a decently priced mechanic that can get this all? It, it's, it's just, there's, there's no greater way to see our own selfishness than often in our own prayer life, right? Um, and it can be very convicting when um, time and time again in spiritual direction this comes up. It's how much time are you spending just worshiping God in prayer? How much time are you spending honoring him? How much time are you spending um, uh, praying for his name to be hallowed? in your thoughts. Um, and of course the answer is, well, not enough. And it's like, well, let's think about that for a moment. <laughs> what would change that? Um, you know, can you think about just, you know, getting in that, um, a time of prayer and spending five, six, seven minutes, um, thinking of nothing else. Um, it's, it's convicting, but the great spot is we're not told not to pray for our own needs. What are we told? Pray for them. Pray for your needs. We're told this repeatedly in Scripture, um, specifically Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus, Matthew chapter 7. Um, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give to those who ask? Right? I mean, listen, parents who are really honest will say, I love my kids, but I often really don't want to give them everything they want. And in fact, most of the time I don't. And in fact, sometimes I actually resent their selfishness. Actually, I think parents should resent your children's selfishness occasionally. But, but the truth of it is that, um, that God's not like that. 
He never tires of hearing our prayers. He never grows weary of um, having petitions poured upon his, uh, poured at his feet. So we do pray for our own needs of daily bread, pardon for sins, and protection from evil. So what is the fourth petition? The fourth petition is, give us this day our bread, or we should say daily bread. What does our daily bread mean? Daily bread includes all that is needed for personal well-being, such as food and clothing, homes and families, work and health, friends and neighbors, and peace and godly governance. Um, we have daily needs in daily life uh, that, let's just agree on this for a moment, can often be overwhelming, especially when you're young, aren't they? It's like, if I have to get one more bank statement with a negative number at the end, I'm going to scream, right? <laughs> it's just, how can I ever catch up? Um, and of course, for many people who've, who've lived a nice long life, they still have the same struggles. Um, it's just constant, constant. Um, I just never have enough. But what does Jesus say about this? Yeah, you know, yeah, again, believe in God, believe also in me, right? Um, but also things like consider the lilies of the field, right? They don't worry. They don't even work. And, do they, and, and yet, how are they clothed? Perfectly. Um, part, of our, part of our problem today is that we're told um, in a constant barrage of marketing. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, <laughs> the madmen uh, continue to plague us, right? These Madison Avenue ad executives who say, how can we get them to want one more thing they don't have? <laughs> That's the question. And they get, paid, they get paid millions of dollars to think about that. Um, is that we have this, we have this culture of discontent. Um, where it's almost as though if you're, if you're at all contented with your life, you're really weird. You're just strange. Right? How on earth can a house that size be big enough for you? It's never big enough. Um, how on earth can just having a few clothes be enough? How can having an old car be enough? Don't you want more? Are you not fulfilled? See how easy it is? Because I bet you were sitting there thinking, you know, that's right, I should get a new car. Um, but listen to this. Daily bread. How powerful is that as a concept? Not bread for tomorrow. Not bread for next year. Not bread for five years from now. Bread for today. Um, and this is really hard for us as Americans to understand because, listen, we don't make a habit of buying, buying bread every day, do we? You go to Europe, you go to, go to Israel, go anywhere in the world, and people buy bread every day of the week. Why? Because there are no preservatives. <laughs> if you want fresh bread, you've got to buy it that day. That's how it works. And so bread is the most, is the most clear example of this. Um, but again, it's not meant to simply be about bread, is it? It's meant to be about all of life. Um, food, clothing, homes, family, work and health. I mean, here's, here's something. As you get older, you start to worry daily about your health, right? It's, you know, um, and that, that can be often the worst, really. Um, but again, we're told to pray for daily bread. Um, to pray for friends and neighbors. One of the most difficult things in my life has been moving regularly, regularly enough so that I never actually build up really deep friendships. Um, my friends live scattered all over the country, and I've made some good friends here, right? But for the most part, I just never get good friendships. And it, start, it starts to be something I really worry about. Like, you know, can I possibly live the good life if I don't have good friends? Um, and it's something I really do worry about. But listen, again, daily bread, right? Don't worry about who's going to be your friend in four years. Worry about who's going to be your friend today. That'll change everything. And we also pray for peace and godly governance. Now, this may be the most difficult thing in tumultuous times like this uh, to pray for, right? We're like, can it all just be sorted out in four years and I'll just go in a deep coma and wake up then? I've heard, I actually heard people say this recently. Like, let's get it all fixed in the future. Well, you know, is it going to be fixed in the future? 
No, it's not. Um, part of the problem with modernity is that we're told from either end that everything's going to get better. And as Christians, what's the answer? Well, it might in certain respects. I mean, absolutely, right? But it doesn't really get better until everything is put under the lordship of Christ. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's an eschatological vision that we have to wait for. But in the meantime, what? Daily bread. Why should you pray for bread daily? God wishes me to trust him every day to supply my needs for that day. Now, all of this imagery, I should say, comes out of the Old Testament. What's the, what's the image that's drawn up by daily bread? Yeah, the manna in the wilderness. Um, it's kind of this wild deal where the, the way that God gets his people recently pulled out of slavery, slavery in Egypt, who, you know, what is it? Listen, what does a slave have? Who does a slave have to trust for daily bread? Yeah, the master, right? If you become God's people, rescued out of slavery and put under his kingship, who do you have to trust for daily bread? God, right? So how does he get them to trust him? going to shower the earth with food, and it's not going to last past a day, except on, fr- except on Fridays, where it'll last another day, in that, but that's it. Otherwise, it gets eaten by worms. So no storing away food, no leftovers, right? Can you imagine a life without leftovers? Um, you know, no weekly trips to the grocery store where you rack up $200 worth of groceries and you put it away in your fridge. No trips to Costco, for sure. Have you tried ever going to the grocery store just every day and just kind of getting what you need just for that day? It can be rather tiring, actually. Um, but it is an act of faith. What's the first thing that happens when people get news that a hurricane's going to hit? Grocery stores get cleaned out. Why? Because worry manifests itself in hoarding, Right? I get worried that it's not going to be there, so I just take as much as I can possibly get, and I bring it to myself. And that's the relationship between trust and fear and faith and hoarding. Why does God give you daily bread? God gives me daily bread because he is a good and loving father, and I should thank him for it morning, noon, and night. This is one of the glorious things about having, a, you know, if, you, if you're on a three-meal-a-day structure uh, and you pray before meals every single day, uh, before every meal, you'll pray Thanksgiving for daily bread three times a day. Um, and I'm actually rather shocked in talking with people that, that praying before meals has become almost a lost thing these days. Um, it's, it's going away. Um, and, but it does... Again, it, it, it builds up our, um, our aptitude, and indeed our, our, our habits of virtue, to not think. Because here's, here's what's really easy to think. What's really easy to think is, oh, well, I got a paycheck, and I took it to the bank. In some cases, you don't even have to do that. And then I took out this magic card at the grocery store, and I swiped it through a machine, and I got food. Right? In H-E-B we trust. Right? It's like magic. But those of you who work in food industries at all, who have been farmers or anything like that, you you think there's something kind of perverse about that. Something really inhuman about that. Um, Because what you really want to say is, listen, somebody's behind that grocery aisle working for that and trusting that um, because I put a seed in the ground, something will come of it. And you know what? It might not. But we don't have to see all that anymore. Um, so it's, it's all the more necessary um, that we live in this, in this, um, in this world where uh, daily bread comes to be front and center again. Um, however, having said all that about faith and trusting God with um, our finances and our daily life and all those things, um, I, I must say that uh, there's a balance to be struck, right? Would you agree? Like, living paycheck to paycheck is a disaster. And it's not being faithful, it's being stupid, okay? And there's no reason for it. 
And in fact, you won't live the life that God intends because of it. Um, so you have to strike that balance, right? Um, but I, I will say that I think, I think today for Christians to pray for daily bread probably has more to do with our fears than anything else. It has to do with our fears to, of being protected, fears of um, calamities breaking out, um, this kind of um, really mortifying fear that people live in. Okay, the fifth petition. What is the fifth petition? The fifth petition is, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What are trespasses? A trespass is a thought, word, or deed contrary to God's holy character and law, missing the mark of his will and expectations. Um, the, the word that's often translated as sin in Greek is uh, hamartia, which refers to um, almost like archery. You pull the bow back and you let it fly, and what happens? You miss, right? Um, and this is, means to fall short of, of God's will. Um, and it's why, I, I, think it's, I think it's actually really good that um, in the Lord's Prayer, in traditional renderings which we use in church, um, we use the word trespass instead of sin because trespass makes us think a little bit about it, doesn't it? Kind of jogs the mind a little bit to say, yeah, yeah, I know I'm a sinner, but, but trespass? I'm not a trespasser. What does it mean to be a trespasser? means you go where you're not supposed to yeah okay jogs the mind a little bit it should it should get you kind of it should jolt you a little bit in terms of thinking well you know what now that i think about it i am a trespasser i'm a horrible trespasser i go where i'm not too i'm not supposed to all the time um we miss the mark constantly have you trespassed against god's law Yes, together with all mankind, I sin daily against God's law in thought, word, and deed, and love neither him nor my neighbor as I should. Um, well, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great answer, right? But how often do we say, no, I'm not really that bad of a sinner. I mean, everything's fine. Um, that's one of the values, by the way, Bert had asked this about, about confession, is that um, I've actually met people in confessionals who've said, you know, I just can't really think of any sin that weighs heavily on my mind. Little things here and there, but I just can't think of anything. And then I often get the, and I'll admit to taking a little bit of pleasure in this, um, saying, well, what have you not done? And then it's like, <laughs> I hate you, right? <laughs> because, because we often get self-satisfied, do we not? And then we need to think about, like, well, I could have done this and I didn't do it. And frankly, I live a pretty self-centered life and it just kind of goes on like that. I haven't done anything really bad, but I'm, I just don't really do anything good either. Um, so it is to say that, um, you know, if... If you say you have no sin, what are you, according to Scripture? A liar. So you're a sinner. Um, this is to say that the, the, the pride often speaks to us and says, um, you're not that bad. Um, you don't really need redemption that badly. You could probably get, a, you could probably get along just fine on your own. Um, but scripture teaches us just how bad it is. All right, what is God's forgiveness? God's forgiveness is his merciful removal of the guilt of sin that results from our disobedience. God's forgiveness is his merciful removal of the guilt of sin. Um, sin carries with it guiltiness, to be guilty. Now, what does it mean to be guilty? Let's just kind of go down this way a little bit because we've got a little bit of time. What does it mean to be guilty? What's that? Yeah, you've committed it. It wasn't somebody else, right? Yeah. It wasn't somebody else. It wasn't your mom. It wasn't your dad. It wasn't your dog. It wasn't circumstance. 
it wasn't, well, the economy was bad, or it was hot outside, or anything like that. It was, you did it. And God's forgiveness is the merciful removal of you did it. Now, what, what's the truth? Yeah, I did it, right? But it's the removal of all course of action that revolves around that one central question, whether or not you did it. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a one, or not C.S. Lewis, I'm sorry. Uh, N.T. Wright wrote a wonderful book on justification, and one of the things he says about that, and I'm not sure if I agree with it yet, but it's kind of helpful to think about, is that according to uh, the ancients, whether or not someone did it or not is sort of in, unco- inconsequential to the question of guilt. What's really at the heart of it is, um, have, you, have you been put in the right or not? And a judge has that ability to put you in the right. Um, so that's, and I, again, I'm not sure I, how I, whether I think that's accurate or not, but it's, it's a helpful way to think about it is, you know, we know that there are people who are guilty all the time who get let off, right? On a technicality because there wasn't enough evidence. Are they guilty? Well, in one sense, but in a legal sense, no, can't be tried again. Um, and this is this is a this is a key important thing. But it's not just that um, that God gets us off on a technicality; it's His merciful removal of the guilt of sin. On what basis do you ask for forgiveness? I ask God to forgive all my sins through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which was completed for me on the cross and is given me to me through faith and baptism. This is really key. If you want to know how, how absolutely horrific and bad human sin is, the cross is, is, is the shining image of how bad sin is. Right? Um, it doesn't just take sort of like a, a dry, a, dry uh, uh, a whiteboard eraser. Right? It's not enough. It doesn't just take sort of like, well, I'm just going to choose to look the other way now. Um, it takes a drastic action. And we ask God for forgiveness of sins on that basis because that forgiveness uh, was completed uh, through the righteousness of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it's given to me, indeed it's, it's mediated to me through faith and then also on the, on, on the basis of my baptism. Now, that often gets a little bit uh, confusing for some people, but let me, let me break it down just a little bit. Um, scriptures are quite clear that the basis of our justification is what? Faith, right? By which we trust God to do what he says he'll do and forgive us. It also means that we put our whole life in his hands. Um, we trust him fully. Um, and between that and what is, what is so dramatically depicted in baptism, there is no contradiction. Can I say that clearly? Because what happens in baptism? Especially, let's think about adults here, because I think it's helpful to think about adults, okay, for just a second. Because very often, you know, we think, well, what about that little baby? Don't do that yet. That can come later, okay? Think about an adult. What do they do? You're leaving behind the old life of sin, right? And you're leaving behind the old life of trusting in, in yourself. Um, and what do you do? You take on a whole new way of life. Um, and you take on Christ's righteousness um, through his death and resurrection into which you are buried and, and risen again. Because what does Paul say? As many of you are baptized into Christ, this is Romans 6, as many of you are baptized into Christ were baptized also into his death. And if you were baptized into a death like his, you will certainly be raised in a resurrection like his. Um, so baptism shows us this and indeed mediates it to us um, as, as, an, as, a, as, a, as an action. Right? Whereby we are made children of God through this. Um, so keep that in mind. We ask for forgiveness on that basis. And so when we ask for forgiveness, we're not just simply, uh, and I think this, but I do think this is important. Um, when we ask for forgiveness, we're basically going with all of this sin to the foot of the cross. Yes? And sort of dumping it there. <laughs> Let me use one more analogy. Um, 
how do you take out your trash? Do you personally take it to the dump? I'm sure there's somebody out here who lives in the country who does, but that you, you don't talk for a second. Okay. <laughs> what do you do? You take it out to the street. Why is it that something that easy can be seen as such a hardship sometimes? But it's so, it's so easy, right? And you let somebody else deal with it. You don't have to see it. You don't have to smell it. Shoot, you don't even have to touch it. You let somebody else deal with it. But you do, and this is important, because some of you, you know, you know what it's like when you miss trash day, right? You got this piling can of stink next to your house. Listen, what is required of the Christian with regard to sin is not to deal with it, not to take care of it, not to do everything necessary to see it forgiven. What you do have to do is you have to take it to the cross. Okay. And that commences in the Christian life through the sacrament of baptism, whereby we take the old life to the cross and we are buried with Christ. And we are risen to a new life of righteousness. Um, and that life continues on, but, you know, we still accumulate sin. So what do you do? You return to the cross, right? And you return to the cross by saying, I am not a child of Satan. I'm a child of God. I have been redeemed. Martin Luther's response in the face of temptation was to say, I am baptized. What did he mean by that? Not that there had been some sort of magical exchange, but what? His entire identity had been changed through this. And he had been identified with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And you and I have to get that right here, which is, and right here, which is that we are not to be identified with sin any longer. Um, and how do you do it? Confession. Take it to the cross. 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 Um, and are there going to be times when you're sick of doing that? Absolutely. Are there going to be times when you're like, Father, same list. Can I have, can I have absolution now? Yes, I absolve you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it'll seem like a joke. Um, but that is, that is what's asked of us, um, is not to deal with our own garbage, not to deal with our own trash, but to simply take it to the cross, take it to the cross. Um, so anyway, uh, we'll begin shortly.